0: We continue in First Timothy, we're in chapter six this week. At the end of this letter to Timothy, Paul is encouraging his friend, Pastor Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus, to hold on to his moral integrity, to his doctrine, to his life and to teaching, to watch those things closely. But he says at this at the very end of the letter, it's kind of a, a final encouragement that it's going to be a fight. It's not going to be easy, and all pastors today are under the same charge, to watch doctrine, to watch your life and your teaching. Indeed, it's, it's for all Christians, especially pastors, but it's for all of us. Guard sound doctrine, flee from sin, run to your Savior, but it's going to be a fight. Uh, this, I thought, you know, it just resonates with me as a former military man that, it's a fight, but then I thought it should resonate with all of us, because Paul wasn't a military man. He was a theologian. Timothy wasn't a military man, and yet they used this soldier language to describe the walk of faith. It's not just any fight, it's a war that has eternal consequences. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is First Timothy six, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to teach us all things. We pray that your spirit would now move within us, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to understand and prompt us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. From June 1940 to June of 1941, it's a very special time in history. If you get to read any books about this year, you should read them. Great Britain, it seemed, stood alone, almost alone, against Nazi Germany. And you say, well, wait, the United States was in the war. From June to June, really until December 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, The U.S. wanted nothing to do with this war. And it wasn't like 51-49 split. It was more like 90% of Americans said, no, no, we are not going to be part of this war. It's a European war, and we're not going to be part of it. All of Great Britain's allies in Europe had been quickly defeated by the Nazis, and only that island seemed to be standing alone. So for that year... The British people should have been in great despair. They were the only, the only country left. But it was also at the beginning of that year that Winston Churchill was elected, appointed prime minister. And he immediately began encouraging the British people not to give up. It's like the Christian message of Hebrews, don't give up, don't quit. He was encouraging the British people to fight. And he single-handedly brought courage to his people. He was honest. He didn't flatter them with how easy this would be. But it was his honesty that was also inspiring. Listen to some of the things that he said. These are from his public speeches in the House of Commons and also on the radio. Death and sorrow will be the companions of our journey. Hardship our garment, constancy and valor our only shield. It's kind of flowery language, but that's what they needed to hear. Famously, he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You might ask, what is our policy? I will say it. It is to wage war by sea and land and air. With all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard that road may be, for without victory there is no survival. So you hear these words, and we know the end of the story. We know that they achieve victory. At the time, their military might compared to that of Germany was minuscule. There were the majority of the government wanted to seek peace with Germany. They wanted to seek peace, to sue for peace to get what they could, just leave Europe alone. Germany, you can have it. We just need to make sure that we survive and the best way to do that is to look for peace, to get terms. Churchill's policy was the opposite. We will not seek peace at all. We will fight. He said, never give in. Never, 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 never. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans We shall fight in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. So here's my question to you. If this man can motivate an entire country to fight a war when they weren't certain of victory when he could motivate every single person in the country to be willing to stand up with your gun, your pitchfork, your kitchen knife, to fight the invading German army. And victory was uncertain. How much more should we be willing to fight single-mindedly the fight of faith? Paul is striving to steal Timothy And the church for the fight of faith, and a fight it is. We're going to talk about this for the next two weeks, with next week as an interlude with Pastor Bradley. But this week we're going to talk about why the Christian life is a fight, and who exactly it is that we are fighting. Why does Paul say to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith? Why is it a good fight? Why is it a fight of faith? Why can't it just be a walk of faith? That's the phrase we like to use the most, isn't it? Yeah, my walk of faith, my journey of faith. It's not really Christian language, in the Bible anyway, although you could be made, arguments certainly are made, that our life is a journey. But what Paul seems to want us to know is that it's a fight. So we're going to talk first about the Christian life as a fight, And then what we're fighting, the three things we're fighting, the lust of the flesh, the world, and the devil. I was talking to a friend, uh, a couple people this week, about uh, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. It's a wonderful book. There's some in the back, actually, um, if you are interested. He has a whole chapter called The Fight. Wonderful inspiration. I read it again this week just to kind of prepare, and I commend it to you. So the the Christian life is a fight. This is the very end of this letter. Remember this letter to Timothy, and it's also to us. We know that because one of the very last sentences in the letter says, "Grace be to you," and the word "you" is plural. In other words, it's a letter for Timothy, but it's a letter that should be read to the church. It's for all of us. Paul is striving to motivate Timothy to overcome all the hardships and trials he faces as pastor, to fight and not give up, to manfully face the duties God has given him, but also for the church to have the same view of their faith. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. I would think that many Christians probably have never thought of their Christianity as a fight at all. Yet it is spiritual warfare. There can be no doubt. It has eternal consequences. We know because in the very next sentence he says, Take hold of eternal life. So this is not a fight that you want to lose. This is not the sermon to be dozing or not paying attention. This fight has eternal consequences and Satan does not want you to know it. He doesn't want you to think about it. He doesn't want you to hear it. Where there is grace, there will be conflict, J.C. Ryle says. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. And yet the fact remains in every age in every church, there are many in church who know nothing of fighting, nothing of contending. John Calvin wrote, Most Christians wish to serve Christ at ease, as if it were a pastime, whereas Christ calls all of his servants to warfare. Christ must be the center of all of your life. I was thinking of an illustration that might appeal to a younger crowd. Most of us want Christ to be kind of a new app on our phone, that we just push that button whenever we need a little Jesus. The reality is he's the operating system, and if he's not your operating system, then he's not yours. You might be thinking, well, is it really this serious? Aren't you being a little drastic? I mean, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I've been baptized. I come to Sunday school, and twice on Sunday... But if in your life there's no semblance of a fight, if you look at your daily life and you see nothing resembling a fight against the world or the lusts of your flesh, you should be very concerned, and that's to say the very least. Ra writes, You never see any fight about their religion, spiritual strife or exertion, conflict, self-denial, watching and warring, They literally know nothing of a fight in their Christian life at all. If this describes you, you should be very concerned. You might be in that terrible category of churchgoers who think they can serve Christ as a pastime. As an app, you push the button on on Sundays. But you think maybe you're still on the narrow road somehow. It reminds me of John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. He writes of Christian who's been through the narrow gate And he's walking on the narrow road, remember? And in the story, there are two who fall over the wall and begin walking with him. I believe it was hypocrisy and legalist, but you can check me on that. And he's talking to them about how they got on the road with him. And he said, why didn't you go through the the gate, the narrow gate? They said, but it's, it's just as easy to jump over the wall. And here we are. We're with you. Christ said in Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. So there's no faith without repentance. There's no faith without a fight. So I implore you, look at your life and ask yourself, is there really any internal struggle for faith at all? Certainly we rest in the work of Christ. I'm not speaking to you if you are resting in Christ and you know if you are because you struggle against your flesh. You struggle against the world. But if that doesn't describe you, then think about it. Consider what your faith is in. So what is the Christian supposed to fight? What do you fight? You flee from your sin and you pursue the Spirit. You pursue Christ. You fight your flesh, you fight the world, you fight the devil. And this is truly a fight. Here, it's an emphasis in Paul's letters. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Soldier of Jesus Christ? You consider yourself a soldier? You should. If you have faith, you're in a fight. Ephesians 6, we'll read this again in a moment, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. You're in a fight, he says, and he's given us armor to fight. Even the words of Jesus indicate that there is a great war for your soul. He says, do not think, Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, in what way a sword? Well, he tells us, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a fight that will embrace every aspect of your life. And when people see and know that you're committed to Christ, even your own family will come against you. Some of you have seen this in your own lives. Are you going to love others more than Christ? Heaven forbid. So let's talk about the specifics of the fight. The lusts of the flesh, the world, and the devil. How do we fight the fight of faith against the flesh, the world, and the devil? Well, he says in verse 11, The beginning, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? Look above 1 Timothy chapter 5 and the beginning parts of chapter 6. What is he called to flee from? Well, he talked about a love of money already. So we know that he's not to be a man who loves money. False doctrine, of course. He needs to flee. It says in verse 4 that it produces envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved and mind and deprived of the truth. So to flee from these things, to flee from those who are causing you to be tempted, to flee from sin. That's the first thing that I think we need to note is that when it comes to sin, we flee from sin. We don't stumble around sin. We don't get close to sin. Romans 7, Paul talks about how there's a war inside your soul. Again, he's using this battle language. Romans 7.23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Indwelling sin, is it's like a war inside you. If you don't feel that war, you should be very concerned. Galatians 5, Paul says, Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. No one went to the cross willingly except Christ. You had to be subdued to be crucified. You were to crucify your flesh, Paul says. To subdue it. Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In 1 Corinthians 9, of course, Paul says, But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Now I realize that talking about sin is not popular. And talking about mortifying sin is not popular. And yet it's thoroughly scriptural and your heart needs to embrace it. We'll talk about how to do that exactly in a moment. But it's all centered on Christ. He's your operating system. He is your all in all. He's your focus, your vision. The result of This rejection of sin, of course, is a pursuit of Christ, which produces fruit. In the next verse, he says, Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Righteous, holy living is the result of a pursuit of Christ. I remember someone who came to me, uh, it was maybe a couple years ago, And they were new to the church, relatively new, or maybe just new to me. I can't remember. They said, why can't Meadow Creek be more like my previous church? My previous church, we all showed up. We kind of got encouraged. We all showed up happy, and then we all left happy. The pastor never came after us and never wanted us to look inside and never challenged us. He just encouraged us with our hope of heaven to remember Jesus. Why can't Meadow Creek be more like that? Where you show up happy and you leave happy and there's nothing in the middle that's uncomfortable. I think there's a part of us that would agree with all of that. But it's not biblical. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible points us to sin, highlights our sin, and then points us to our Savior. Our lives should be centered on fellowship and communion with God. Every day. And if this is not your battle, you have no battle. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to focus your gaze on Jesus and His person and His work so that you can throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for you. Your fight with sin is real. Allow the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in your life and then ask Christ to fill what it is you think that sin does for you that's so wonderful. But it's not just a fight against sin, the fight, the fight of faith. It's also a fight against the world. The world. You think, well, what is the world? What is that? We're fighting the earth? Sounds like a sci-fi movie. No, it's not that. The world and its system. We're all tempted by the world and all that it offers, pleasure, riches, or fame, or status, or health, whatever the world thinks they can give us. In the book of the Revelation, the world and its system is described as Babylon the Great. It describes opulence, and indulgence, and sex, and immorality, and wealth, and fame, and commerce, pleasure. And it's always opposed to the church. Always. Those who pursue these things, the things the world offers, cannot also pursue Jesus. You can't have both. I know people who have disavowed all relationship with the church and Christ. And I have great respect for them as opposed to people who claim Christ and yet have this wonderful little friendship with the world on the side or have Christ on the side because their friendship with the world is so great I respect someone who just says no I'm not going to be in church and I'm not going to be with Christ because at least they're being honest of course I don't want anyone to do that I'd much rather them come to faith but this person has more respect for me than the one who claims Christ but pursues the world and that's not just me this is James and John and Paul. James says in James 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. If you make yourself a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, there's no middle ground in John's thinking. You love the world, there's no love of the Father. Conversely, you love the Father, there's no love of the world. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We'll never be useful to God if we're conformed to the world. There's absolutely no synergy between the world and God. There's, there's not any blending A.W. Tozer famously wrote, The cross of Christ cuts through the current of the world at right angles. And he's right. To the degree that you're in friendship with the world, to that degree, you're rejecting Christ and vice versa. To that degree, you're at enmity with God. And however, to the degree that you're communing with Christ and abiding in the vine by the Spirit and by the Spirit's power, to that same degree you will reject the world by the power of the Spirit. You'll reject all the allurements of the world. And it's a full-up fight. It's not a, an on-again, off-again thing. Again, I'm reminded of World War II. Many of you have relatives who just left and were gone for four years. I was talking to Leona, her husband, Boyce. He enlisted and was gone. He was gone for three or four years. It was a full-up commitment to victory. My grandfather was the same. He enlisted on December tenth, nineteen 1941. He returned in 1944. He was gone. And it was a hard life for these men who left everything my grandpa's wife divorced him while he was gone. Got a Dear John letter like thousands and thousands of other servicemen. Can you imagine? And yet I think it's so illus- it so illustrates how difficult the life of faith is. If you embrace Christ, if you've counted the cost, you're going to have a difficult, a difficult walk. A difficult battle, a difficult fight. Not without joy, but it won't be easy. So, where's the world in your life? This is what I want to ask. Do you see the culture kind of as a neutral entity? Like maybe your friend a little bit? You know, Hollywood, they're just, they're okay. I mean, they do some good stuff. Everything in the culture that is not focused on Christ, is not Christ-centered, is being used as a tool of the enemy. Everything. So you need to be careful. Of course, we live in the world, but you need to be careful. As Christ needs to be the center of all. As you pursue Christ, or rather as Christ pursues you, You're going to find that as He sanctifies your soul, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Pop culture, Hollywood, music, social media, sports, consumerism, all of these things that represent what the world is. Entertainment. It will become more and more repulsive and unattractive as you recognize the hand of the enemy. The enemy uses all of those things to distract his church. Rather than boasting in anything else, you should boast, like Paul, in the Lord Jesus Christ in him alone. He says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And God will help you. That's our encouragement. This is not something that you just get stronger and you do it. You just fight it. You fight it yourself. 1 John 5, John says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, Christ is with you. He will never leave you. Like he told Joshua and the people of Israel, as they were entering into a time of great battle. He says, I'm going to fight for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So as you think of your fight with sin and your fight with the world and all of its allurements, don't be discouraged. Certainly be motivated to return to your first love, but don't be discouraged. You embrace Christ. The things of the earth truly will grow strangely dim the more you focus your gaze daily on Christ. Finally, the Christian life is a fight against the devil. So the fight against the world and the flesh, they seem easier to grasp, don't they? The world, you can kind of see the world and all of its system. You see how culture just infiltrates your home through the television, through social media, through your computer, whatever, or just being out in the world. You see how the world is just always pulling at you, pulling pulling you away from Christ. So you can see the world, and you can certainly see your own sin as your sin is constantly... If you're in Christ, you see this anyway. You see your your conscience being pulled left and right as you desire to live for God in your inner man. And yet you have indwelling sin that's pulling and fighting and warring against your soul. So those, I believe, are easier to see. But the fight against the devil is more hidden, isn't it? Like we don't see what's going on. We know that he's seeking to devour us. But exactly how and exactly what he does... Is not evident. It's a spiritual thing that we're not aware of. Certainly, he tempts us. We know that. We know what the word says about him. He afflicts us as he is permitted. He brings suffering and he uses the world to persecute as God permits. And we're told to be watchful in 1 Peter 5 8. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, your adversary, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. He tempts us. Well, how did he tempt Adam? How did he tempt Eve in the garden? Doubt God's word and doubt God's goodness. You have these same temptations when the devil comes against you. Tempts you to doubt God's word and to doubt His goodness. He's somehow holding out on you. He somehow wants you're ill, not you're good. This trial is somehow because God is angry and mad, and He's He hates you, not because He loves you as a child, as an adopted child into His own family. Satan's a liar. John 8:44 Jesus told the Pharisees that you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. One way you can recognize an attack of the devil is that he's lying to you. How do you know what's true? It's right here. So when you're tempted to think, you're just too sinful. God is so angry with you. He's so disappointed. Now if you're not in Christ, yes, God is angry. If you don't have faith in Christ, yes, He's angry. He's angry at sin and all who do sin and reject and rebel. But in Christ... He has nothing but love and compassion for his children. You should not believe that lie. You've gone too far now, the devil will say. You've gone too far. You will never recover from this. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. God will never leave his children to be finally destroyed. And the aim of Satan is always imperfect. Because he cannot do what he intends to the child of God. He lies. He's a murderer. And all the power of the world and the unregenerate humanity is at his disposal. And yet, we are still victorious. And we know we will be. That's why we stand up and we fight. We manfully fight the fight of faith. Because it's a good fight. One of the reasons why it's good is because Jesus is on our side. You remember when Peter was about to betray Christ? Horribly betray Christ three times. On the night of his crucifixion, Peter betrays him. He claimed to love him the most. And before this ever happened, Jesus said, Simon, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you know Christ is interceding for you right now at the Father's side? Just as he prayed for Peter, he's interceding at the Father's side that your faith may not fail. And indeed, in Christ it will not fail. So you can be confident. Those whom God has chosen for eternal life cannot ultimately fail. And not only do we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. So think of this. The Father chose you for life. The Son came and died so that you could have life. The Holy Spirit applied that life to each one of you who have faith in Christ. All of the Trinity are for you in this life. There's nothing to fear. You may get discouraged at times with your sin or your love of the world. There's nothing to fear. There's no reason to shrink. I want to close with Ephesians chapter 6. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. 1 and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 6. This is one of the most explicit places in Scripture speaking of the fight of faith is the end of the letter to Ephesians. It's interesting that it's the same church that Timothy pastored, that he's writing to here. This church must have been embattled with the world or sin or attacked by Satan. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So we already mentioned that we flee from sin. This is one method of our warfare. But the most important method of our warfare is to trust our commander. And we see that in Ephesians 6. All of the The belt of truth and the the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the readiness of the gospel. It all points to Christ and his work, his finished work. He's the one who's handing you this armor. He's he's the one who's, who's attending you and putting on your armor. All of these things point to Christ. We need to trust him to trust our commander, to faithfully put on the armor. How do you do this, you're asking? It's actually not all that extraordinary. It's very ordinary. The ordinary means of grace. The reading and study and preaching of God's word. You see the belt of truth. You see Christ's righteousness. You hear the gospel You have peace and comfort for your soul. You know of your salvation. It's like a helmet. The word of God is like a sword. Defeating your enemies and defeating your own sin. Your mind is renewed. Devote yourself every day to the reading of God's word. Whenever the word is preached, show up and listen to the preached word of God. If you think that one sermon once a week is enough to get you through the week, you're mistaken. I wish we could preach like Calvin or Knox did every day. They preached every day, sometimes twice a day. Study the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. It points you to your Savior. Besides the Word, we have the precious sacraments that have been given to us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, they all point to Christ's righteousness and salvation and truth and our union with Christ. And we're spiritually enriched and strengthened in this battle, this fight. But notice at the end of this, Paul mentions prayer. He says prayer is to be lifted up for all things continually. Pray in the Spirit. This isn't some charismatic word. This just means pray in accordance with the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. With all kinds of prayers and requests. And he even says pray for me. Pray for me as well. This is Paul asking for prayer. Life should be lived in prayer. Daily prayer. And God's people will be drawn to prayer. I continue to challenge all of us That if you're not daily praying, you need to wonder why. Because God's people will be called to prayer. He will bring you to your knees in prayer. Every day. And finally, fellowship with the body of Christ. We have the word, the sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. As outlined in Acts chapter 2. It's our struggle. Pray for me, Paul says. He's he's saying that this is all of us. We're fighting together. Ecclesiastes 4 says, If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need to be together often. So the fight is real. Make sure you're in the fight. If you don't feel like you're in a fight, you need to ask yourself, Why? Why am I not feeling... Any sort of conflict, spiritual conflict at all, with the flesh, with the world, with the devil? Why is there no persecution in my life at all? Why is there never any temptation? Why do I never feel tempted? You should ask why. But after you, after you do have faith in Christ, you will see these things. You will see that the fight is real. And then we can take courage. Paul says, We can stand firm in the faith. We can act like men. We can be strong. Ladies, it doesn't mean act like men in an absurd way like our culture would say today. It just means as those who would go to battle. There was a time when a country didn't send its women to battle. It says act like men in the sense that you will stride forward and fight the spiritual fight of faith wage the good warfare, hold faith in a good conscience. By God's grace, with our eyes on Jesus, we can do this. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have encouraged us. You have encouraged us in this fight, the good fight of faith. You've given us a good commander, one who never fails, who never errs, who never leads us astray. You've given us every weapon that we could possibly need for this fight, the fight of faith. You've equipped us. Indeed, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, all of you are for us. All of you will never leave us or forsake us. The triune God is for us, and we thank you. Father, we thank you for bringing us into your army. We thank you for bringing us into your family. Jesus, we thank you that you are a commander who has earned every right to our obedience and our respect and our honor. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you empower us to fight well, to fight for you. So this week, this day, this very moment, Holy Spirit, do your work. We need you so very badly. We pray this all in the mighty and powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.